Hello, Crowdies. I'm glad you're here and listening in because I'm really excited about this episode of Crowded In Here. We're going behind the scenes a bit with an integral part of Team Crowded House and Team Neil Finn. As you know from past podcasts, I like finding out what inspires people, what music they love, and what experiences have had an influence on who they've become. This episode's guest discovered a love for sound, audio, and music early in his life and we have all benefited from his passion and obsession for telling stories and creating emotion through the art and science of sound. But first. Crowded House, great band or the greatest band? It's the soundtrack of my youth. Listening to Crowded House now just feels like a warm hug. Over the last few years, I've been fortunate to meet a number of people from New Zealand. I now call them friends and colleagues, and every time we get together, whether it be in person or over a Zoom call, I'm forever impressed by their kindness, civility, and generosity of spirit. My friends, Jeremy Ansel is no different. A kind soul, a family man, a lover of music, and quite possibly a fan of Crowded House. Jeremy has worked as a radio studio engineer and producer for New Zealand's public radio broadcaster, RNZ, for 33 years. His documentary series, Enzology, The Story of Split Ends, was first broadcast on RNZ and ABC in 2005. With Neil Finn, Jeremy co-produced the bonus discs for the seven Crowded House Deluxe Editions, released in 2016. As a member of Team Neil Finn and Team Crowded House, he has co-managed Neil's social media and website content for the last eight years. Jeremy lives in Auckland with his partner Jenny, two teenage children, two cats, and no room for any more records, says Jenny. Over a Zoom call on a Saturday afternoon and Sunday morning, Jeremy and I spoke from either side of the world. So Jeremy, it's great to be talking with you again. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to talk with me and fellow fans of Crowded House. I hope you're doing well. I thought we'd we'd set the stage a bit here. Uh, You're at your home in Auckland. I'm at my home here in Richmond, Virginia. Fittingly for a Crowded House interview, I'm in my kitchen. Uh, Lots of comments made about uh, how many times kitchens show up in songs, but- Indeed. And and you are are where? I'm in my bedroom at the back of the house, uh, far away from the Wi-Fi. so hopefully coming through loud and clear. That's great. It looks like there's a guitar in the background, so uh, at least you've got some music, uh, music behind There is a guitar in the background. I cannot play it. Uh, I forget chords in, in the months in between playing, um, uh, so I dabble only. Um, so you're in Auckland, but that's not where you started your life. Where, where did you... Uh... No, I'm a Wellingtonian. Well, I, I guess I'm an Aucklander now, having lived here for 20 years, but I, f- I spent the first 30 years in Wellington the capital city city of New Zealand. Um, And uh, I grew up in the suburb of Kandala. And uh, yeah, Wellington's a lovely place. It's um, very compact with a a city that's easy to get around. And it's more like a village than than Auckland. Auckland's very spread out. Sure. You have uh, favorite memories 
growing up there as, as a child? I was always really into records. So I spent as much time as I could sitting behind a record player or later on a tape recorder. Uh, I thought any time not doing that was time wasted. Um, but um, yeah, like, like, like most kids of our generation, I, you know, I do have fond memories of, of you know, riding around the house on my bicycle and, and uh, going on holidays with the family, spending time with friends. But uh, it's probably the time spent inside absorbing music and trying to make my own music on in unorthodox ways on tape recorders that uh, I've you know, creating something. Um, that's what I really always hung up, you know, you know, couldn't wait to do at the end of the day. So what's your first memory of producing sound or recording sound or uh, sort of that, that early discovery of the magic of audio? My first, one of my first memories at, uh, of, of anything is uh, at the age of about two and looking up at the record sitting in the record rack on top of the piano, seeing the turntable or record player sitting on top of the TV. Don't know why I still remember that, but I definitely do. It was a different house. Uh, we, we moved when I was two, so uh, I know how old I, I was when I saw those Im images. Uh, but for actually recording, we didn't get a tape recorder at home till I was seven. And I remember my father bringing this, this uh, radio cassette player home. Uh, it was a really actually a very good model. So a Sony that uh, at the same time, Neil was using and Noel was using. They, Neil and, and Noel from Splurians had identical tape recorders and they were uh, recording their demos in England with, with those machines just... Uh, to place together so yeah it's a good good sounding machine and, and um, yeah the family used to record little skits and things on on that and i gradually found ways to manipulate the cassette recorder uh, make it play at different speeds and go backwards and uh, make little sound effects on it and uh, did things to it that i really shouldn't have been doing <laughs> like like what well uh yeah with the backwards thing, I discovered that if you uh, unscrew the playback head or, or screw it in, it moves the head across the tape. So that instead of recording on tracks on the left and right of, of side one, you could record on the right of side one and the right of side two. Okay. And so if you record yourself and then flip the cassette over and play it back, you could hear it backwards. And uh, I just dis discovered that when I was 12, because the, the head had gradually been moving anyway. And, the, you know, playing back tapes had been, been sounding muffled, but eventually I could hear stuff playing backwards. Uh, and I thought, ah, that could be handy. So mostly um, self-discovery. Uh, you didn't, you weren't taking classes or you weren't... Uh... No, I was, um, at the time, I was the only person at school who was into this sort of thing. Although I tried to get other people involved, you know, I was pretty obsessed. It was really just me in my bedroom, uh, annoying the rest of the family with, you know, clicking and weird noises and, you know, my electric ukulele, which is really just a ukulele with a microphone stuck in the sound hole, mm -hmm. plugged into an old cassette recorder with rundown batteries so it would distort. 
sounded like the guitar on Duran Duran's Girls on Film. Because oh. I couldn't play it properly, so I just tuned everything to the same, <laughs> the same note and uh, had that sound. Great song, good choice. I'll, yeah. I affirm that, that choice. When did, when did you start uh, you know, layering sounds and putting things together? And what, was, there, was there something that just uh, uh, you were very proud of at an early age? Yeah, well, I, I bought a, so we had this, this family cassette recorder and then I bought one for myself when I was 10 using birthday money and Christmas money and some holiday job money. Um, bought a little Walkman sized mono cassette recorder. And so now I had two cassette recorders. I could record something on one tape, play it back, and while adding another voice or instrument um, while you know, on, on the second recorder, and then repeat the process. So that was my version of multi tracking, mm. <laughs> just with the microphone up to the speaker. It sounded pretty terrible, but it's, uh, it was a start. And again, using um, rundown batteries and a cassette record recorder, I could record things at different speeds. And that was just, especially when I was about 12, 13, that's when I really got serious about experimentation and keeping the recordings, you know, as, as a sort of a diary of, of my, my progress and making skits and songs. I got really excited about discovering new techniques and effects. And I still got all those, all those tapes. And I knew at the time that what, what I was doing, I would eventually lose that, that sort of creativity because um, I'd start, would eventually start using more sophisticated equipment and uh, there'd be stuff that I wouldn't be able to do because of fear of breaking things. And I did break machines quite a bit, my poor parents having to help me uh, <laughs> get things repaired. But yeah, when I, once I start, started working properly for radio, uh, you, you didn't want to be um, breaking equipment uh, and there'd be proper ways of doing things. So yeah, doing things that you weren't supposed to do is, and gen generally that's the, the most creative way to do things. So in that, that stage of experimentation, were your, were your parents fairly supportive of, of your uh, obsession with sound? Did you? They, they were, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, they didn't like it when I broke things, but they didn't complain too much either. My, my siblings were, um, they really put up with a lot because, you know, thin walls and we all had our own bedrooms, unfortunately, but, you know, I'd be, even if I wore headphones, it'd be, it'd be clicking and um, tapping and, and um, whirring away in the, in the middle of the night and uh, they'd be trying to study for exams and things. So, um, or I'd be, there's, there was one room in the house which had hard walls and I'd use that as my echo, echo chamber and found that if you, it, it was a very short reverb, but if you played something really fast and then slowed that down, you'd get uh, a, a longer reverb. And um, I was doing that with, uh, I was trying to make the sounds of dinosaurs and then had a complaint from my oldest brother who was you know, studying for exams. And I thought, oh, look, I can't do this anymore. I've got a this recording hobby is just too much trouble for everybody and I'm not going to do it anymore. But uh, within a couple of weeks now, I was back to, <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't keep away. I just, what I had to do. That sounds like you were uh, 
you, you found a connection with audio very early on and you realized that was a that was a passion that was something you kind of had to stick with so yeah yeah I, it was around about that age early teens that, that i decided you know i wanted to be a recording engineer for uh, for a job or a dj or you know something to do with with sound so you know so you're starting to think about getting outside of the house and uh, you know out into the, the real world a little bit what's the what's the music scene like in wellington how are you discovering music you know getting access to, to new music at, at that age at that age well it's so listening to the radio uh i mean we had we, we only had about six six stations on air in, in Wellington in the uh, in the mid 80s. The the only FM station in the in the early 80s was the uh, local university station Radioactive. So I'd, I'd been used to listening to commercial, you know, pop music on 2ZM, which was uh, uh, Wellington's um, government station. And they you know play the same song every three hours and, and so on. So I, I was I was into pop. Um, but with radioactive, because that was FM and it was stereo and it was new and, and uh, that was exciting, I found myself uh, listening to that just because it wasn't AM. And then discovering all this, uh, this other uh, non-commercial music that I wouldn't have otherwise heard, you know, The, the Cure and uh, Susie and the Banshees and things that initially I thought I didn't like, but the more I heard them, uh, actually that's... That's good stuff. And, you know, my brothers would uh, introduce me to, to things that I, you know, wouldn't have heard otherwise, B-52s and, and so on. And my, my, my sister as well. You know, I didn't say how many, there was, so I had two older brothers and one younger sister, yeah. And also friends would, would, would introduce me to, to things. Um, I didn't go out to see bands that much, I mean, mostly they, they were, playing in pubs and things, which, you know, as a teenager, I wasn't allowed to go to anyway. So how did, how did physically come into your house? Um, were there, were there new vinyl records? Were there new CDs? What, uh... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I was, uh, been collecting vinyl since I was about three or four. <laughs> uh, that's when I you know, started getting them for every birthday and Christmas. I wanted records and, um, Discovered the Beatles when I, when my mother bought Magical Mystery Tour in the mid seventies, and then the rock and roll music compilation, and I thought, oh, they're pretty good, because <laughs> um, I I wanted more pop music in in the house, and I asked my mum to, you know, can we can we have some, some you know a pop music record, and then she bought. I was expecting another ABBA record or. Um, mm. There's, there was this hairy guy on on TV called Kenny Rogers that quite kind of kind of rock and roll. Sure. What did I know? Uh, although I guess he was originally in the in the rock band. Um, and she got the Beatles record. I thought, well, that's not what I asked for, but um, played it, and uh, that was that was pretty cool. And so um, yeah, I gradually started getting more Beatles music, and then became obsessed with the Beatles. So for a number of years, every birthday and Christmas, it was another Beatles cassette or LP. And uh, that's remained with me. I, I um, bought another couple of Beatles LPs just, just, uh, just a week ago. Um, Gosh, this is, you would think that would be hard to find. You know, those, they didn't last very long. 
uh, you know, the Beatles didn't have much of a career, so. No, no, they're, they're rather obscure. So um, there's something I keep to myself and I, you know, try and keep to myself. I try and keep their name alive. You know, it's just me and one or two others. I, I think that's well done. That's good on you for that one. <laughs> you had told me a story. We had, you know, we had talked previously. You told me a story about uh, renting uh, or, or checking out vinyls from the library. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So that's, so that's that, you know, that was another uh, way of finding new music is, is the Wellington Public Library had uh, a very good collection of, of uh, vinyl LPs and cassettes. And um, for 30 cents, you could rent an LP for three weeks. Mm. And so I'd be um, thinking, that looks like an interesting cover. Brian, Brian Eno, I don't know who that is. I'll uh, take that home and play it. Um, and if I really liked it, I'd record it onto cassette and listen to that for a couple of years before eventually buying the, the, the original LP itself. I think everything, I've, pretty much everything I've ever recorded onto tape, I've ended up buying um, a proper physical copy of it, usually second hand, but yeah, we can't afford to buy the, 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 uh, the buy it new every time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, the record library was fantastic. I mean, it's as close as you can get now to Spotify or uh, Apple Music. The original Spotify, your local library. Yeah. They should, they should use that as a motto. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, concerts, you said, you know, they, they were tough to get to uh, early on, but you started, started going. Well, yeah, well, I mentioned um, concerts at small gigs at, at pubs and things, but I did actually go to uh, the big events you know, the, the first rock pop concert I went to was David Bowie in the Serious Moonlight Tour mm. um, at Epic Park. It was, uh, it cost $18.50 New Zealand money, which seemed, a l you know, that was just a little bit more than the price of two albums. Um, whereas now a, a concert might cost you yeah, 150 New Zealand dollars. And, um, but yeah. Uh, so that that was that was fantastic. Although I was howling southerly, southerly, and I got very cold. He was good, and uh, Elton John, nineteen eighty four. I won tickets to that from Tuesday. I, I was addicted to radio competitions, so I'd win concert tickets and uh, record vouchers. Uh, the, throughout eighty three, eighty four, that paid for most of my <laughs> new album purchases being the fourth caller in at a certain time. Uh -huh. uh, nearly broke my parents' phone. <laughs> Sounds like you had a good system though. You had a good, uh, a good strategy. Well, the strategy was just to listen to the radio constantly and uh, not get much else done and not be bashful about hogging the, uh, the limelight on the radio. So who uh, at that time, um, let's say when you're you know, 16, 17, um, who who are your your favorite bands at that point? Who are you, what are you, what are you a fan of at that point? Yeah, sixteen. Um, well, the Beatles were still the, the main thing, but uh, I became a major Peter Gabriel fan mm. when uh, it was around the time 83, Shock the Monkey was was the hit on the radio, and that sounded interesting. I can't remember how I got into the listening to the albums uh oh, it might have been yeah it was hearing walk through the fire from the against all odds soundtrack that was 
played on on a uh, temporary FM station, and I thought that sounds great. And um, I, you know, had a listen to um, some of his other stuff, you know, Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel, and Peter Gabriel, the first four albums, either secondhand or you know, got the cassettes and things, and um, that was exactly the sort of music I, I've been looking for. And then, you know, So came out in 1986 with the fantastic videos, which we couldn't see on New Zealand TV. Was that right? Actually. Yeah, Sledgehammer came out and, and um, there was uh, a disagreement between the record, the, the uh, New Zealand recording industry and TVNZ over whether TVNZ could play those music videos without having to pay for them. There was a, a very... Uh, influential well, music video show uh, weekly on TV called Ready to Roll, which ran from uh, about 1975 through to the 90s, I think. And everybody watched it, uh, certainly kids my age. Um, there was you know, half an hour on a Friday night and then it moved to a Saturday night. And um, so that was very popular. And the, the record labels were, were thinking, well, you know, we should be paid for this. So, you know, there's a disagreement for a long time and you couldn't watch music videos in the middle of 1986. Mm. Even EMI paid for a three-minute advertising block so that they could play um, the new sing single new video by Queen. Um, right? It's kind of magic. Wow. And the only way I could, I could see Sledgehammer was um, on Entertainment Tonight. They'd show little bits here and there. And they were, so that was annoying. You didn't have MTV constantly rolling. We no, but there was there was no twenty four. Well, in Wellington, there was no twenty four hour music channel. Um, there was one a little later on in Auckland, but uh, you know, MTV didn't come along until the the nineties, uh, and we we got MTV Europe, I think. Probably why you're a more advanced society than we are here in the states. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We 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 only had um, there was one TV channel up until 1975 um, and then there were two for a few years and then in 1989 we got three so um, yeah there are many more now. So somewhere along the line Split Ends comes into your life. Is this about that time? Yeah yeah well I had been aware of Split Ends in the um, mid to late 70s. They maybe the early 70s as well they, they appeared every now and then on, on New Zealand television and um, I regarded them as the scary clown band. And the music was um, probably more difficult than the sort of thing I was, I was into. But then I Got You came out and this featured a lot on Ready to Roll, that uh, music video series. And it was undeniably a, a huge hit. Now I wasn't sure whether I liked it or not. And at first I thought, no, I'm not sure I do like it, but um, but then my my brother got the True Colors album, and I, this might have been been before even before it came out in the US. It was released a number of months. It was released in Australia and New Zealand a number of months before it came out in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and I heard him playing it through the wall, and I thought, well, this is fantastic. You know, it starts off with Shark Attack. The original version starts off with Shark Attack, and then goes into I Got You. And songs like Nobody Takes Me Seriously. And um, it was so wonderfully recorded by David Tickle. 
and the songs were uh, undeniably catchy and energetic. Um, and having two lead singers, it worked well for the Beatles. It certainly worked well for Split Ends too. You know, the, vari the variety of, you know, having Tim's voice and then Neil's voice. And, and um, so, yeah, I, I decided that was a good album. And that a number of the songs we released as singles were, were radio hits. Um, hearing Poor Boy at nighttime mm. on, on AM radio um, in, my, in my bedroom, that was just heavenly. I mean, uh, the, with, with Eddie's spooky uh, instrumental break and um, yeah, you, you just let your imagination run wild with that song. Still love it. So they had a, certainly a mix of uh, uh, song types, uh, you know, some, some quirky songs, some ballads. What, what, uh, what really resonated with you? What did you prefer of their catalog? I think I, um, I think I gravitated towards the, uh, the quirky side more and the up-tempo or um, disturbing numbers more so than the ballads. I wasn't really into the ballads so much back then. Like I would prefer Bullet Brain and Cactus Head to Message to My Girl, certainly at, at the time. Or uh, Nobody Takes Me Seriously, I would rather listen to that over I Hope I Never. But yeah, they, they were um, very well written and well recorded well-played songs and uh, I go through phases where I you know don't want to hear split ends for a few months and then um, I go back to it and think oh, that, that really is a good record and the first one the first split ends record I bought for myself was One Step Ahead the single in December 1980 um, I'd seen the video on TV with their uh, sort of Beatles look the, the black skivvies and, and things and heard it on radio and, and it, it uh, it was still, it's kind of son of I Got You, with a slightly menacing tone. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that was very catchy. That's and uh, I spent my pocket money on it and bought it. Definitely a, a darker uh, a darker song. Um, but that turns out to be somewhat prophetic for you, right? I mean, that's, if that's your first signal, single that you purchase and down the road, you're uh, now working for Crowded House and working for Neil. Uh, it's a nice, kind of a nice tie-in over a 30-year period. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine at 10 years old being told that you'd be <laughs> working with these guys later on. Um, yeah, that's pretty neat. The next episode with part two of my interview with Jeremy Ansel will be out very, very soon. Crowded House is hosted and produced by Andy Lacatel. If you enjoyed this episode, please like the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever medium you are using to listen in. Until next time, sweet dreams, make waves, find peace. <laughs>